Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. This is our first podcast of the year, and we'll be taking a look at the key spaces to watch for your newsroom in 2024. Joining me is Nick Newman, Senior Research Associate at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism and the author of the annual Journalism, Media and Technology Trends and Predictions report. The report gauges the outlook of 314 media leaders across 56 countries as they wrestle with the combined challenges of generative AI, social media platforms, business models, news audiences, and much more. Stay tuned to prepare yourself for another year of promise and pitfalls. Don't go anywhere. Nick, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast again. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to be here. One thing I really look forward to at the start of the year is the Reuters Institute's um, Journalism, Media and Technology Trends and Predictions Report. Great to see that coming out early doors. Um, After what's been a really disruptive and chaotic year last year, it's it's great to kind of recap on what's happened and kind of the spaces to watch in in the year to come. So um, I guess really just to get the ball moving, now, looking back at this report, is there anything in there that genuinely surprised you? Is there anything in there that you really thought, hmm, I didn't quite expect that? I mean, it's probably we're going to talk a lot about AI, I'm sure. But um, I think what I didn't expect, given the caution that we see, certainly in the UK with UK publishers, is how fast some publishers in other parts of the world are moving on actually putting some of this stuff out live in the product. So that's everything from, you know, summarization modules to getting, you know, training reporters, AI reporters who are not real, you know, the, the avatars to write stories. This is going on in, in Northern Europe, in Germany, and, uh, you know, not to an enormous extent, but I think just the extent to which we see some of that stuff actually emerging in real life. And I think it's a sort of, it, it, it gives us a sense of where we might be going this year. I think a lot of this year has been about experimentation. I think um, uh, twenty twenty four is going to be much more about putting things live and really trying to make this work for publishers, both at the back end but also in the product. Yeah, obviously this report is informed by three hundred plus media leaders across fifty six countries. What's the mood in the camp about that level of you know putting this technology we're not necessarily sure about into practice? I mean, I think there's sort of different camps. So I think the consensus is let's really protect our trust. Let's not go too fast. Let's not sort of jump on this great shiny thing and damage our trust. And let's focus on the back end efficiencies, which uh, have a whole load of benefits, much lower reputational risk. People don't seem to be so worried about that side of things. But also it really helps to save money and to do more with less. And also I think uh, on the transformational capabilities of AI to take content and turn it very cheaply into a different language or into a different format. I think people really see the potential benefits and relatively low risks of that type of use of AI as well. So that's where everyone's focused. I mean, there was a, there's a quote in the report, I think from Ed Roussel, who's the head of digital at the Times and the Sunday Times, who says, you know, the main focus is on the back end, you know, how, how we create efficiencies, you know, reporters and humans are going to carry on doing the reporting and we're not going to shift from that. I, I think we will see some publishers shift from that, but that's the consensus right now. Right. And I think this has been a big question, certainly in the last sort of 12 months or so, trying to find some sort of purpose amongst all the possibilities for this technology. Is there any untapped potential here with this technology we're maybe not looking at? Is there any 
anything else that might come out of uh, the possibilities that we're not really thinking about yet? I mean, coding is one that people mention a lot, actually. Um, and some publishers have seen, you know, 50% improvement in terms of speed of, of, of coding and new product development, for example. Uh, though, of course, it's still, you know, people are still getting to, to grips with what that means and, and how much they can rely on it. So there's there's some sort of things that weren't around a few years ago. But for me, the area that is a bit untapped, because it, it really leans into these, this problem of engagement is how do you transform content to create stuff that is more relevant? So not personalization necessarily of topics or stories, but personalization of formats. So you can take something and make it really engage with a very particular audience by converting it into a different format or a different tone of voice. And obviously we've seen examples of that with tools like Artifact that enable you to say, okay, well, rewrite the story as it, you know, so, so it works as if I was five or turn this into emojis, you know, that kind of transformation. I think that has genuine potential if you can work out how to personalize the formats more to help deal with some of these problems of engagement, which all publishers are dealing with right now. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm sure publishers in the back of their minds would also be thinking about their own tone of voice and their own house style as well, on, laced on top of that. But true to say also, when you think about the possibilities that could have for engaging young audiences, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, there's some great examples in the report of, um, I mean, I talk about this will be the year when, when journalism newsrooms get augmented with sort of tools, almost like AI concierges that sit on your shoulder and sort of nudge you towards uh, thinking about things in a different way. So there's one that Helsing and Cinemat have produced called the Henning Bot, which started actually not as an AI tool, but it's it now in, it's integrated into the content management system. So you write the story and it will kind of at a certain point in the story suggest uh, something that, that might you might want to include to help with a particular audience. So it's kind of linking up with the audience data at the back end. Aftenbladet in Sweden have something called a youth assistant that just reminds people as you write stories that this won't work for an 18-year-old. You know? So so it's kind of how you, how you change the language for an 18-year-old that probably also works for older people as well to make that language a bit simpler. And in the Philippines, they've developed these uh, set of tools called TLDR, which which is essentially the same sort of thing. It's essentially taking content and transforming text content that's quite dense and difficult for younger people and turning that into, you know, videos or, or, or different kinds of content. So I think that kind of AI augmented tools um, built into content management systems is something we're going to see a lot more of this year. Really, really, really exciting that. Um, of course, the generative AI conversation isn't all optimism. In fact, publishers are very worried about what it will mean for trust. I think 70% say that it's going to ha- you know, harm um, trust towards news brands. Yeah, it's hard to know whether that pessimism is going to be justified or not this year. There's obviously a huge year for elections and people really worry that bad actors or an explosion of synthetic content is going to swamp you know, trusted content um, will further confuse people who are already pretty confused uh, with all these sort of different perspectives, harder to sort out what's true and what isn't true. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it, it, it may be that those fears are sort of overblown. Uh, we have, you know, so far, uh, a lot of the sort of deep fakes have been relatively easy to spot. There haven't been that many of them. Um, and uh, we simply don't know. But I, I do I do think we are going to have an explosion of synthetic content. I think that's going to happen. The extent to which 
traditional content is going to is going to be uh, less visible as a result within platforms. There's so many different factors involved there in terms of uh, you know how they try and identify automatically what kind of content should be surfaced. Um, you know, it's in their interest not to have reliable content uh, swamped. And then, um, yeah, obviously the implications for search in general uh, and what happens to search, uh, I think, you know, people are very worried about, but probably in the short term, it, it, the, the effect's going to be smaller than people think. Yeah, you're definitely right. It's a, it's a, it's a high stakes year next year with, with elections, not least here in the UK. What sort of challenges lie ahead here and, and how difficult would that be for news publishers to navigate? Well, I mean, we've, we've already seen AI uh, being used to some extent um, for uh, propaganda or targeting purposes in, in a number of elections. So Slovakian elections, you had, um, you had a fake audio, which, which was released just before polling, which had, which uh, had some kind of impact, was very hard to debunk for various reasons. You have um, the Argentinian elections, uh, AI was used extensively by both of the major candidates and supporters of the major candidates, not always to try and manipulate, sometimes just to illustrate things differently. So, you know, th- there are going to be perfectly reasonable uses of AI and there's going to be ones where they're they're trying to manipulate. Uh, And then we've already seen the US election, uh, you know, the political parties themselves using AI without properly labelling it. You've had one of the campaigns, for example, mixing up real images of Anthony Fauci and Donald Trump with fake ones and without labelling that. And there's no, you know, there's no rules yet to counter this effectively. So that's the fear, is that, you know, the Electoral Commission are going to be caught cold by this this sort of wave of AI-generated content. We've got no defences, but I, but obviously the, the platforms are thinking very hard about this because their reputation is also at risk over the next year. Yeah. Platforms we will, of course, come on to, but I suppose the last thing really here to touch on is um, sort of partnerships or, or deals between news publishers and um, tech companies like OpenAI's ChatGPT. At the tail end of last year, of course, we had the deal between Axel Springer and um, OpenAI that would see them license uh, news content really for training purposes there. But the, the survey um, kind of indicates that about half of respondents are pretty pessimistic about what that really means for, for, for at least the revenue potential. Um, it's a bit of pessimism there. Yeah. And there's been more reports in the last few days about, you know, how much money might be on offer. And if you sort of split that across multiple publishers, you know, you you, you realise why that pessimism is there. That uh, And also just from history, um, that actually the money from platforms has ended up being a pretty small slice of income for most uh, publishers. So they're not holding out much hope. 48% think that at the end of the day, there won't be much money from these licensing deals. And what money there is, uh, about a third think that most of the money will go to the big companies, whether that's Axel Springer or New York Times or, or or whoever, who are obviously in a strong a strong position. I think the, the the difference here is that the platforms don't need to do deals with everyone to make this work. And I think the Axel Springer deal is really interesting because it's kind of split into two parts. So one is the historic training on data, for which uh, you know a certain amount of money is available, and then. I think real-time news is going to be a different pot of potential licensing, again, where you don't really need all of the providers. Maybe you just need to do a deal with a news agency, for example, like AP, who've done deals for the real-time news. You know, you want one reliable performer in a chatbot, you can ask a question and get an answer back. Because it's diminishing returns after that point, really, isn't it? It's diminishing returns. So, you know, again, you've got this asynchronicity of power where you have platforms that don't need everybody. Got it. Um, and... and uh, 
And but it's interesting that you know the, the, there is an incentive in the Axel Springer deal. The more your stuff gets pulled or used by the AI, the more value you get, the more reward you get. So I think licensing is going to be really interesting, and it definitely is going to be different to how it was with uh, with the social media platforms in terms of how that that works. Uh, it's kind of going to be built in from the start. I think the key point is this year is probably going to be the way in which the templates are laid down by legal action or by specific deals. So that's why even if it pans out over five years, this year is crucial because it sets down the templates. Get yourself uh, some good lawyers, <laughs> then I think yeah. is the message. Yeah. Media lawyers, definitely business to be in this year. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, maybe this isn't about the money. Maybe this is really about the precedent it sets and you know training these models a bit better and combating misinformation. Is that the, is that the feeling? These models are going to depend on reliable information. Um, and so, you know, news organizations do have uh, strength, particularly in that sort of real-time news news space. And I think, you know, as it has been for, for social media platforms, you know, news is going to be a relatively small part of their, of their business and the queries, but it's going to be disproportionately important in terms of reputational impact. So it's important for the platforms to get this right, as well as for, for media companies to get this right. Okay, let's recap. There's plenty of enthusiasm to use generative AI for productivity gains, and with an election year in front of us, now is the time to find practical applications for the tech and help audiences sift through a messy online information space. News publishers are still more cautious about uses which carry reputational risks, with content creation top of the pile. Legal action and deals with tech companies are the key spaces to watch. But news publishers are only a small part of the puzzle. It's governments, platforms and tech companies that really need to get their skates on. Speaking of which, we've all felt the pinch of platforms like Facebook and X, formerly Twitter, which are proving less and less effective for driving website traffic. Data from Chartbeat, sourced for the report across 2,000 sites, shows an aggregate heavy loss of referral traffic from both platforms, 48% on Facebook and 27% on X. Is this a changing of the old guard? Are the new platforms on the block about to step up? Back to Nick. The drop-off is is remarkable. I mean, forty-eight percent in one year, uh, and that obviously disproportionately affects um, media companies that are dependent on distributed um, traffic and on advertising. Uh, subscription publishers generally a little bit less affected, um, and uh, it is part of this shift essentially from you know the post and refer more model to a model where to engage people in social media you have to create distinctive content for specific platforms um and it's and it takes more effort you know to create tiktok or youtube videos and most of that is then consumed within those platforms where monetization rules are different so this is a big change which media companies need to get their heads around and it definitely means um you know different kinds of monetization much of monetization is not yet built out in those other platforms by the way but over over time it's going to mean you know more deals different ways of accessing greater push into video and, and audio for example rather than pure text so i think it has a lot of implications for for the type of media that people focus on and for business models yeah of course and, and two of those publishers that really suffered of course were buzzfeed and, and vice last year respectively um with this social heavy high click-through traffic ad-driven model what are the lessons really to take away from that you think it is about changing the guard that that um and, and most publishers are 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 really focusing on um building direct relationships whether you're an ad supporting model or you're a, a subscription model 
that is now the sort of chief aim is to build stronger direct relationships with a secondary aim to use alternative platforms to try and drive traffic and find new audiences. So even some, somebody like the Mail Online, for example, that has been about reach. It's been about um, ad-based uh, sales across as many markets as possible. They've started a premium model uh, this month, or they're starting a premium model this month. Um, and so essentially, we're going to see more publishers trying to build those relationships and the value that you get from them so that people are prepared to pay, um, at, which is basically not so much about volume. It's more about loyalty and connection. Mm. Very telling. Um, where does that leave young audiences then in particular? Because these kind of sites tend to cater towards the younger audiences. Where are they going to be won and lost in the year ahead, you think? So the direct strategy is not going to work with younger audiences um, or not for many younger audiences. You have to have the secondary strategy, which is about these alternative platforms. And in different countries, it will be different alternative platforms. You know, in Norway, maybe Snapchat. In the UK, it will be TikTok or YouTube. And um, And again, you have to be there and you have to be better at knowing how to talk to younger people in those in a tone of voice that works for them in those platforms. So we've seen um, obviously publishers going on to TikTok, but not necessarily with real conviction or in a way that really is resonating. So in a lot of those platforms so far, a lot of the influence, as this came from our digital news report as well, it is influencers, it's sort of social media personalities, who people are listening to, even when it comes to news, they're not not necessarily listening to the likes of the BBC in the same way as they have done in Twitter or Facebook. Let's do a quick fire couple of questions here, just on some other things in the report. Um, uh, a word or two, really, on what what really stood out to you in these in these kind of areas. Maybe a key stat that really took your notice. Let's go with new subscriptions. What's happening there? Uh, new subscription is pretty robust. The problem is that, that that for most traditional publishers, it's not making up for the loss of print income or or the decline of, of television audiences. So, but yeah, relatively robust. Um, but the main focus is is on retention because churn is growing, and it's really hard to find new audiences. So you need to basically retain people or upsell your existing customers. So that's the focus this year: retain or upsell. Interesting. And and obviously, re- part of retention is the whole bundling and all access. Uh, subscription models, New York Times and others are, are pursuing Northern European publishers. Do you think the bundle will, will change in terms of the sort of things lumped into the deal? I think we're going to see a lot more innovation in, the, in that area. Um, so the New York Times model is one model, but Northern European publishers are putting um, magazines, podcasts, a whole load of other things into that bundle, and it's proving quite successful. Anything kind of outside of the box? I think one of the things we'll see in terms of the bundle this year um, is that a lot of the bundling has been with other titles in a single company and i think we'll start seeing more cooperation so bundling between companies um so that you're providing uh, a range of, uh, of of content oh sort of like the model of bringing the athletic into the new york times you mean that kind of thing yeah got it um new devices new devices uh so we're, we're going to see two interesting new new consumer launches apple vision pro obviously we we saw versions of it or some people saw versions of it last year but but it'll probably go on sale three thousand dollars or more uh, mixed reality glasses primarily for developers and it's not going to be a big hit obviously consumer wise but it is really interesting because i think you know great reviews and i think um, there will obviously be cheaper versions over the next two three four years and i think spatial computing um 
you know, there'll be some relevance to news, but I think it's just a really interesting new area. And then the second area is the humane pin, which most people think will be a flop. This is something you attach to your clothing. It can project onto your hand. Uh, the idea is you get away from endless scrolling and looking at a, a square screen. Um, and I think it's a really interesting experiment that will almost certainly not work, but I think is, uh, is, is, is worth watching and we'll probably learn something out of it. Why don't you think it will work? Too novelty? Because um, do you really need another small thing you're going to lose that's going to sit on your clothes? And most people do need a screen and they're going to carry around a smartphone anyway. So I'm not sure what problem it solves ultimately. Mm, Fair point. Finally, news avoidance. One space to watch there. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a long-running problem, isn't it? But I think it's a growing problem, and, and it splits into lots of different things, sort of disconnection with news that many younger people feel and how we engage them back into the news, and then this sort of overload and protecting our mental health because we keep basically trying to produce more content, and that's not what people want. People want smarter content, and they want more relevant content. And the news industry really has to get with that program because just by producing more stuff, we're turning more people away from the news and more negative stuff. So how we balance that's a really difficult problem but it's a combination of you know explanatory journalism solutions constructive journalism we've talked about all these things better diversity and tone of voice there's a range of different we know what the solutions are we just need to put them into practice well this year is going to be one to watch for sure and um, nick thanks ever so much for jumping on the podcast congrats on the report great job and um, looking forward to the digital news report uh, midway through the year thanks jacob My takeaway for today is to pick your battles. This year will give us a lot more clues for a lot of the problems we're all facing. We can't predict what Elon Musk will do next. We can't be sure how audiences will respond to the incoming flood of synthetic content around election season. Will they gravitate towards trusted news brands or turn off altogether? But we can control the types of content and experiences our audiences get from us and try our best to respond to the next banner in the works. I'd love to know what you took from today's conversation and how your newsroom is preparing for 2024. Find me on LinkedIn, Twitter slash X at JPG Journalism, or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms. Just search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>